For a moment, an emergency room doctor stepped away from the scrum of people working on Rory Staunton, 12, and spoke to his parents. Your son is seriously ill, the doctor said. How seriously? Rory's mother, Orlaith Staunton, asked. The doctor paused. Gravely ill, he said. How could that be? Two days earlier, diving for a basketball at his high school gym, Rory had cut his arm. He arrived at his pediatrician's office the next day, Thursday, March 29th, vomiting feverish and with pain in his leg. He was sent to the emergency room at NYU Lagone Medical Center. The doctors agreed he was suffering from an upset stomach and dehydration. He was given fluids, told to take a Tylenol, and sent home. Partially camouflaged by ordinary childhood woes, Rory's condition was, in fact, already dire. Bacteria had gotten into his blood, probably through the cut on his arm. He was sliding into a septic crisis, an avalanche of immune responses to infection which he would not escape. On April 1st, three nights after he was sent home from the emergency room, he died in the intensive care unit. The cause was severe septic shock brought on by the infection, hospital records say. The excerpt of the article I just read to you comes from a July 11, 2012 article in the New York Times. And it describes the tragic death of Rory Staunton, a case that has become famous in the medical community as a prime example of the stakes that are involved in a correct medical diagnosis. Today it's, today it's widely agreed that Rory didn't have to die. When he first showed up in the emergency room, two days after suffering that cut on his arm, there was data that pointed to the fact that he was experiencing serious health issues. As the Times article goes on to state, quote, moments after an emergency room doctor ordered Rory's discharge, believing fluids had made him better, his vital signs recorded while he was still at the hospital suggested that he could be seriously ill. Even more pointed signals emerged three hours later when the Stauntons were at home. The hospital's laboratory reported that Rory was producing vast quantities of cells that combat bacterial infection, a warning that sepsis could be on the horizon. In other words, the data pointed to the fact that Rory was incredibly sick. The data was there. And if it had been recognized that night, then it's agreed that there's a good chance that Rory would still be with us today. The problem, though, is that that data was overlooked. It was ignored until the infection had advanced to such a degree that by the time the doctors finally recognized it three days later, it was too late. There was nothing they could do. And so now if we were to list the cause of death for 12-year-old Rory Staunton today, there would be two causes. There is, of course, the more immediate direct cause, which was the blood infection that overwhelmed Rory's immune system. And then there is the indirect cause, which is the wrong diagnosis that allowed the early stages of sepsis to go untreated. Both contributed to Rory's untimely death, both the disease and the diagnosis. In fact, it's for this very reason that shortly after his death, Rory's parents launched the Rory Staunton Foundation for Sepsis Prevention to both raise public awareness of sepsis and improve medical diagnosis of sepsis. They did it because a right diagnosis is critical in the fight against any disease, and most especially one as dangerous as sepsis. And it's with this thought in mind that I want us to turn our attention to our passage for this morning, which is Matthew 23, 25 to 28. Again, that's Matthew 23, 25 to 28. For the past several weeks, we've observed Jesus as he has excoriated the scribes and the Pharisees for their religious hypocrisy. This is how he responded to the public confrontation of his authority in the temple on the Tuesday before his death. He publicly rebuked the leaders for their hardness of heart. This rebuke is eventually going to end in a final declaration of judgment. These are actually going to be the last words that Jesus will ever publicly say before his betrayal and arrest. He's going to pass sentence on the religious leader's refusal to believe his message. But before he does that, before he declares the punishment, he declares the verdict as he catalogs the sins of the religious leaders one last time. That's really what this section of Matthew is. It's it's more or less a summary of the various points of contention that have arisen between Jesus and the religious leaders throughout the Gospel of Matthew. 
Here Jesus just lumps all those issues together one last time in summary format as he delivers the final verdict before his death. The crime, broadly speaking, is hypocrisy. That's what the religious leaders are guilty of, hypocrisy. They're guilty of feigning righteousness in order to receive praise from men, according to Matthew 23, 1-12. According to verses 13-15, to the effect of this hypocrisy is that they have not only shut people out of the kingdom of heaven, but they've actually made their way in harder. This explains why Jesus is about to pass a sentence as severe as the one he's about to deliver in our passage next week. Hypocrisy can seem like such a, such a harmless sin to commit until, that is, you realize the impact of it. Jesus explains that much of Israel is actually going to go to hell because of this crime. That's why the punishment is so severe. It isn't just hypocrisy that the scribes and Pharisees are guilty of, but essentially first-degree spiritual homicide via hypocrisy. In verses 16 to 24, Jesus continues in his verdict by explaining the error in their system. In other words, Jesus doesn't just declare the scribes and Pharisees guilty, but he explains why they are guilty. He shows them where they have broken the law. And they did it, he explains, by swapping out the weightier, more important matters of the law for the less significant. They were guilty because while they did keep the letter of the law, While one could say they even obeyed the law, technically, they still violated it in principle. They would take passages that spoke of making oaths before God, and then they would use those passages to justify breaking their word. They would pay attention to minor parts of the law, portions that have have to do with things like tithing, uh, while at the same time failing to practice justice, mercy, and faithfulness, which were the ethical foundations of the finer points of the law uh, that, w- that these finer points were built on. So Jesus has already explained both the error of the Pharisees' hypocrisy and its devastating effect. Now this week, Jesus is going to get down to explaining the origins of this hypocrisy. He's going to talk about where it comes from. And this is actually very key to the verdict, by the way, because effectively what this passage is going to show is that the reason why these men are going to be condemned is not just because they are guilty of murder, but because they are murderers. You understand what Jesus is going to show us in today's passage is that these men didn't just commit the act of spiritual homicide. No, the problem is that they are fundamentally, at their core, spiritual serial killers. So next week, Jesus is going to declare the death sentence. And right up front, I want you to understand that this is why. It isn't just because these men have killed, in a sense. It's because they are killers. In other words, the reason why they're worthy of death is because they are actually evil. Now that being said, you may wonder how a passage like this one can be helpful or useful to someone like you or I. I mean, you put it in the context of the original audience, Matthew's readers who would appear to be primarily Jewish Christians, and it's pretty easy to see why this passage would be so relevant for them. As Jewish Christians... As Christians who were likely under pressure from their Jewish brethren, especially the religious leadership, to abandon their faith, this passage would have been very important. It explains why Israel is rejecting the Messiah, and it prepares these readers for the consequences of that rejection. In short, this verdict would help them understand why they're facing persecution, and in a way that they could witness firsthand. They could not only see the kind of hypocrisy that Jesus describes here taking place in their community as they suffered persecution, as the religious leaders rejected the truth that they proclaimed on Jesus' behalf, but this passage helps them understand why that's taking place. Again, it diagnoses the disease that is afflicting their brethren. And in providing that kind of an explanation, this passage would reinforce their faith and encourage them to persevere. I'm not saying that that we can know for sure that that's why Matthew included this passage in his gospel. I'm just saying it makes sense. It's not hard to conceive why this passage, this verdict, would be relevant to the original audience. But what about us? The primary purpose of this passage, it would seem, is to explain Jesus' condemnation of the religious leadership. What does that have to do with us? Again, it's easy to see why that subject would be relevant to the ancient Jewish Christian, but I doubt there's any of us in here who are really conflicted by the realization that Israel's leadership rejected its Messiah. So why is this important? How is this passage 
useful or relevant? Well, it's important for a couple of reasons. First off, I'll just point out up front, this passage demonstrates that God is faithful. And that's an often overlooked but incredibly important point. The, the judgment that Jesus is about to assign to Israel. That could be reason to think that God is not faithful to His people if it was not an act of judgment for their sin. That's important. This judgment actually reveals that God has not rejected His people. The issue is that for the moment they have rejected Him. He is faithful. His word is trustworthy. That matters. The second reason why this passage is important is because it reveals to us the consequences and inner workings of hypocrisy. That also matters because we're often guilty of hypocrisy ourselves. And as I explained last week, this has an incredibly detrimental impact on the advancement of the gospel when we do act hypocritically. It's not just the Pharisees who do this kind of stuff. We do it too. Perhaps we don't do it to the degree that they did it, But we're just as prone to the fear of man, even to self-righteousness, as they are. And what Jesus explains here is why we do it. He explains where it comes from. That's very helpful, because as Christians, we don't want to repeat their errors. We want to avoid their mistakes. So if we can understand Jesus' diagnosis here, that's going to give us the kind of information that we need to treat the disease. We've already seen that hypocrisy is is really very much like sepsis. It's a kind of infection that can spread very subtly, invisibly even, among a body of believers. That's why Jesus even warns His disciples about the leaven of the scribes and Pharisees, which we saw back in Matthew 16, is the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. Again, we are prone to this kind of error. That's why Jesus warns against it. Well, by explaining to us the source of the Pharisees' hypocrisy, Jesus gives us the means to begin treating it. It all starts with the right diagnosis. Just as a doctor cannot take the appropriate steps to beat heart disease if he thinks all he's dealing with is a mild case of acid reflux, so also you cannot take the appropriate steps to repent of hypocrisy if you don't know the root cause of the symptoms, which is what we looked at last week. Last week we looked at the symptoms. You need that right diagnosis to know what sort of treatment to start. And that's what Jesus gives us here. So this is an incredibly important passage for us for this second reason. And and that's the reason I want to focus on going forward. What is Jesus' diagnosis? And what does this tell us about what we must do to flee from hypocrisy? Let's go ahead and read the passage together and find out. Matthew 23, 25-28. Jesus says this, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness." So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Once again, in this passage, Jesus explains the root of the Pharisees' hypocrisies, and He explains it in two parts. In the first woe statement, Jesus attributes the problem to an inferior method. An inferior method. And in the second woe statement, He attributes it to inferior results. And the way that these two work together, because I think this raises the question, you know, which is the cause or which is the result? And I think the answer to that question is both. And the way that that works together is that the inferior method produced an inferior result. Or perhaps even better stated, the inferior method failed to produce a superior result. In a sense, the condition that Jesus is going to get into in the second woe statement, that's the real source of hypocrisy. It was a a pre-existing spiritual condition. The disease was already there. And the inferior method, well, it was just bad medicine. It was spiritual malpractice. Spiritual malpractice in that, like in the case of young Rory Staunton, it failed to treat the real danger lurking beneath the surface. 
Just like we'd say it was both the sepsis and the misdiagnosis that killed Rory. So also it was both the spiritual disease and the subsequent diagnosis that produced this soul-destroying hypocrisy in the scribes and Pharisees. So both the method and the result or condition is the cause of the Pharisees' hypocrisies. Let's start by looking first at the method. What was at the root of the Pharisees' hypocrisy? Well, first and foremost, they pursued an inferior method. An inferior method. They misdiagnosed their problem and prescribed the wrong medicine. Once again, we see this in the first will statement in verses 25 to 26. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and the plate, but inside they are full of greed and self-indulgence. You blind Pharisee, first clean the inside of the cup and the plate, that the outside also may be clean. As I said a moment ago, in this chapter, Jesus is really summarizing his conflicts with the scribes and the Pharisees. And when he makes this statement... I think it should draw us back to the encounter that occurred back in chapter 15 when this delegation of scribes and Pharisees were sent from Jerusalem to question Jesus, asking Him, Why do your disciples break the tradition of the elders? For they do not wash their hands when they eat. You guys remember that chapter, I'm assuming, that that passage, that encounter? Well, in His response, Jesus first rebuked the scribes and the Pharisees for setting aside the commandment of God for the sake of their tradition. That's more or less a parallel of what he said in last week's passage when he condemned them for finding legal loopholes in the Scripture and for substituting genuine, substituting those for genuine core foundational expressions of righteousness. Jesus said there, John 15, 7-9, He said, You hypocrites, well did Isaiah prophecy of you when he said, This people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me. In vain do they worship me, teaching as doctrines the commandments of men. That was the first part of his response. Uh, back in Matthew 15. In the second part, he then turned to the crowds. And and again, in, in response to this question about the washing of hands, he declared to the crowds, hear and understand, it is not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth. This defiles a person. And when his disciples asked what he meant by this, Jesus explained. He said, are you still without understanding? Do you not see that whatever goes into the mouth passes through the stomach, into the stomach, and is expelled. But what comes out of the mouth proceeds from the heart, and this defiles a person. For out of the heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. These are what defile a person. But to eat with unwashed hands does not defile anyone. Jesus explains that by focusing on the washing of hands, the Pharisees were focusing on the wrong issue. They were acting as if man's problem was on the outside. With what he came in contact with, Jesus says that this isn't how it works. In short, the Pharisees misunderstood the law. They thought that what it taught, with all its regulations on you know, cleanness and uncleanness, they thought that what it taught was that man's problem was out there. It was with the things that he came in contact with. It was their contact with the fallen world that made them unworthy of God's presence. The world contaminated them, and through that contamination made them unworthy of any sort of fellowship with God. So, take care of that external contamination issue, and you take care of the separation issue. Jesus says it's actually the exact opposite. What the uncleanness laws were designed to communicate was not that the world contaminated man, but that man contaminated the world. The disease was inside of them. It was their sin. And their sin had so contaminated the world that there were now some elements of the world that had been tarnished in God's sight. That's what the cleanness laws were designed to communicate. The sin that was coming out of man and contaminating everything around him. Again, the Pharisees missed the point. They were apparently theologically ignorant of this fact. They they failed to recognize the degree of their own sinfulness. And so they tended to focus only on restricting external behavior rather than on a complete transformation of the inner person. Jesus repeatedly pointed this out toward the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount. See, see, Jesus did the exact opposite of the scribes and the Pharisees. He tended to focus on the intent of the law rather than the letter of the law. He didn't look for loopholes. If anything... With the way he treated guys like Matthew Levi, with the way he approached issues like Sabbath, it actually looked to everyone else 
like Jesus was relaxing God's commands. But this is only because he was paying attention to the weightier matters of the law and giving heed to that over the minutiae. As he explained on more than one occasion when he was questioned for his methods, he said, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Well, like I said, this this focus on principle rather than letter led many to conclude that Jesus wasn't serious about God's commands. And so at the beginning of the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus addresses these concerns. And he says, Do not think that I came to abolish the law or the prophets. I have not come to abolish them, but to fulfill them. For truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not an iota, not a dot, will pass from the law until all is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. But whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, this is important. He says, For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In short, Jesus says, He begins that sermon and He says, Wait, 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 you guys, you guys are misunderstanding me. You think I'm lowering the bar. I'm not lowering the bar, I'm raising it. And then He goes on to explain. And He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old. That's a reference to the teaching of the scribes and Pharisees. He says, You have heard that it was said to those of old, You shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to the judgment. But I say to you, that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to the judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says, You fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. You see what Jesus does there? He, 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 he says the problem isn't outside of you. It's not in your actions. It's inside of you. It's who you are in your heart. And he continues to do this over and over again, going from anger to lust to to covenant commitments and oaths to to feelings of hate and desire for vengeance. He's explaining the reason why I'm doing this different from the scribes and the Pharisees is because they think the problem is outside of you and the problem's not outside of you. The problem is inside of you. And he's saying, if you, if you don't fix that problem, then you're going to hell. He's stating that, that what is necessary for entrance into the kingdom of heaven is not some external conformity to righteousness, but an internal cleansing and transformation of the sinner. That's where the root problem is that separates a person from God. It's their internal uncleanness. The sin that's inside of them, that's what cuts them off from fellowship. The Pharisees missed the point, and that's why Jesus, what Jesus critiques once again here in, in Matthew 23. They focused on the external issues, they cleaned the outside of the cup, and the real problem is internal. Inside, they're full of greed and, and self-indulgence. So they can mess with the legal stipulations of the law all they want, they can tie their garden herbs, they can debate over the right application of oaths, and they can even try to hold themselves to these man-made traditions with the utmost sincerity, sincerity as it appears many scribes and Pharisees did. Men like Paul, for instance, he, he tried to fulfill that, it appeared, with the utmost sincerity. The problem is that so long as they kept the focus on the external issues, Rather than the internal ones, they would never be able to produce the kind of righteousness the, the, the kind of righteousness that God desires. Things like justice, mercy, and faithfulness. That all proceeds out of the inside, out of the, out of the heart. And so as long as their hearts are unchanged, their actions are, are never going to come. The Pharisees got the order wrong. They start on the inside, Jesus says. And so that's why this, there's this external problem. If you start on the inside, the rest will come. Start on the outside, and you're going to continue to practice the kind of hypocrisy that God finds loathsome. There's going to continue to be this this disconnect between motive and action, so long as you focus on the outside. You're going to continue to only play the part of a righteous person. Again, this people honors me with their lips, but their heart is far from me, God said. That's the charge he laid against them, hypocrisy. And that will continue to be the result so long as the Pharisees start in the wrong place by cleaning the outside of the cup instead of the inside. So the Pharisees pursued an inferior method, Jesus says in verses 25 to 26. And so this produced an inferior result. Inferior result. 
That's our second point. We find it in the second woe statement in verses 27 to 28. Jesus says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. Here you have this extreme dichotomy between the outside and the inside of a tomb. Uh, during the Hebrew month of Adar, which is the, the month before Passover, it was common for the entrances to tombs, the, the tombs surrounding Jerusalem, uh, which were often set down into the ground and then covered with a large stone. Uh, these entrances to the tombs would be whitewashed so that travelers coming into the city wouldn't inadvertently come in contact with one of these tombs. And the reason for this was because according to, to Numbers 19.16, anyone who came in contact with a grave would be made unclean for seven days, and therefore unable to participate in the Passover feast during the time of their uncleanness. This whitewash, along with perhaps some of the ornamentation around these tombs as well, apparently gave these tombs a beautiful and well-kept appearance. And so they looked good on the outside, aesthetically. But inside they were full of these bones of the dead, which would ultimately defile a person if they came in contact with them and make them unfit to enter into the presence of God. Jesus says, you guys are like that to the Pharisees. They appear pleasing on the outside because that's where they focused. They focused on cleaning the outside of the cup. They looked very put together there, very well kept. But unfortunately, there was an uncleanness inside of them that would, in effect, contaminate those that they came in contact with. That's the effect that Jesus described back in verses 13 to 15. The Pharisees actually shut people out of the kingdom of heaven with their teaching, even making them twice as much a child of hell as the Pharisees themselves. This is the result of their inferior method, their faulty diagnosis. The Pharisees treated the disciple for the flu when inside they were full of sepsis. So the disease remained. And by the way, I just want to point out here, the key word in this statement is remained. What the scripture tells us is that all men are actually born into the world, dead, spiritually. For example, Paul says in Ephesians, to the Ephesians, in Ephesians chapter 2, verses 1 to 9, he says, And you were dead in the trespasses and sins, in which you once walked according to the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now work in the sons of disobedience among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. And then he continues by saying, But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which He loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up with Him, and seated us with Him in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, so that in the coming ages He might show the immeasurable riches of His grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast." He continues in verse 10, he says, For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. Before they came to know Christ, the Ephesians were dead, Paul says. This doesn't merely mean that they were sentenced to death, that their future judgment meant that they were, it was presently as if they were dead. No, it means that they were spiritually dead. They were hostile to God. And therefore unable to submit themselves to God's law, according to Romans 8, 7-8. According to 1 Corinthians 2.14, they were unable to understand the things of the Spirit of God. Quote, because those things are spiritually discerned. That's the point that Paul is driving at. And this is confirmed in verse 5 of Ephesians 2, when Paul says that even when the Ephesians were dead in this condition, Christ made them alive together with Him. Past tense. And He raised them up and seated them in the heavenly places with Christ Jesus. The idea is that the Ephesians had already been made alive and were presently experiencing the aliveness that God accomplished through His grace. This point is further confirmed in verse 10 when Paul says that the Ephesians were God's, quote, workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared before Him that they should walk in them. Again, there's this new creation that's already taking place in the lives of the Ephesians, and this new creation is tied to the Ephesians' obedience to God. This all points to the idea of spiritual death and subsequently regeneration by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
That's how everyone's born into this world. They're born spiritually, stillborn. They are dead in their transgressions and sins. That's the gift that they inherited from their father, Adam. Death. And that's where they begin. They're already full of bones, according to the Scripture. Again, the uncleanness is inside them. And the problem was that the Pharisee system, which focused on the outside, didn't address that issue. It left it undiagnosed. In other words, the wrong method didn't create the uncleanness. It just failed to adequately treat the root issue. It failed to treat the disease, which is this inherited spiritual death inside us. And so rather than healing either the Pharisee or the Pharisaical disciple, it left them in this state of uncleanness. And that's where their hypocrisy ultimately comes from. It comes from this internal condition. The the reason, listen, the reason why the Pharisees were greedy and selfish, given to the love of money, was because internally they were idolaters. They they tried to serve both God and money, which Jesus said you cannot do. Same with their lust or their, their lack of compassion. Internally, they were untransformed, and so they produced all kinds of unrighteous desires on the inside. But at the same time, because they were untransformed, they they still desired praise for men as well. They wanted the reputation of a righteous man, but not for righteous reasons. They weren't concerned with pleasing God, but pleasing man. Again, their untransformed condition produced that kind of a desire. They did not love God, as the law commanded, from the heart. Instead, they loved the praise of men. And so what they did was put on a show of righteousness to parade before men in order to receive praise. That kind of duality, the contrast between the outside and the inside, which defines the hypocrite. Listen, that's all rooted in the very nature of the, hip- of the hypocrite, which is fallen and corrupt. I really hope you understand what I'm getting here. The Pharisees, listen to what, let me listen close to this. The Pharisees weren't sinners because they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites because they were sinners. The one naturally produced the other. In other words, so long as the Pharisees possessed this internal sinful nature, the very best, the very best that they could do was manufacture a hypocritical expression of righteousness. Again, they're dead on the inside. The Scripture says they're unable to respond to God. This means that they cannot produce genuine righteousness. The very best they can do is produce a counterfeit. And this counterfeit righteousness, it was was unable to then turn around and cleanse their inner condition. They possessed an inferior condition that could only produce an inferior method that could then only produce an inferior result. In short, they possessed a condition that made it completely impossible for them to cleanse themselves. Just as life cannot emerge from death apart from the miraculous power of God, so also the death inside the Pharisees made them unable to produce a system that could bring themselves to life. They could only manufacture one that would perpetuate and even increase the death inside them. Quite simply, they were unable to pick themselves up by the proverbial bootstraps. I don't know if you've ever thought about the meaning of that phrase to pull yourself up by the bootstraps, but it's meant to describe a logically impossible task. I mean, just go and try it after church, you know. Grab yourself by the ankles and pull. And try to lift yourself up off the ground sheerly by your own effort without any external help, not even the ground itself to propel you from it. You can't do it, right? Well, that was the state of the Pharisees. They possessed death in themselves, And so this meant that the only systems they could produce were systems that magnified that death. Even their religious ones. They were unable to pull themselves up out of that situation by their own bootstraps. They didn't have the spiritual resources to resurrect themselves. The very best they could do was produce a system of hypocrisy. Again, let me state it again. They weren't sinners because they were hypocrites. They were hypocrites because they were sinners. That's all that the internal uncleanness could produce. And unfortunately, because that's all they could produce, that's all that could spread as they taught other people. Like the graves in this passage, the Pharisees could only manage to spread their uncleanness to others as they made disciples and taught them to observe the same broken system. If we're trying to discover the root of hypocrisy, this is at least part of the answer. The reason why we practice hypocrisy is because we're sinners. We practice hypocrisy because inside we're hypocrites. That's the natural fruit of the death inside us. 
So when it comes to hypocrisy, there are really two issues at play. Once again, there's the inferior method, which is this focus on external things rather than internal ones. And then there is the inferior result that is produced, or perhaps even better stated, this inferior result that's left untouched by this inferior method. We act hypocritically because we're sinners, and the system of hypocrisy we produce fails to remove that sinful condition. And so the system just ends up perpetuating itself in a kind of cycle. What then removes this hypocrisy? If that's what Jesus gives us as a diagnosis, if he says... The problem is that you have this cancer living inside you. And the way that you're treating it is by disinfecting your hands. It's a far, far more serious condition than the way you're treating it. If that's the diagnosis, then what's the medicine? What remedy should we be applying? Now, Jesus doesn't tell us that answer here in this passage. Again, he's right here he's just rendering a verdict. He's explaining why he's going to deliver the devastating sentence that he's about to pass in our passage next week. So we can't answer that question here from this passage. But Jesus has answered that question earlier in this gospel. Again, this verdict is a summary uh, point of his ministry. The reason why he's passing sentence here is because he has already explained what needs to happen to avoid this judgment many different times during his ministry, and it's been rejected. The religious leaders have refused that option. They've refused the medicine he's offered. And so now, here's the verdict and the sentence. So what has Jesus said? If if the hypocrisy is rooted in this inner condition, and if it's perpetuated by this inferior method produced by this condition, then what's the solution? Let me just try to briefly summarize the answer to that question as Jesus delivered it throughout this gospel with uh, the rest of the time that we have remaining. How do we eliminate hypocrisy? Well, the first step, the very first step, according to Jesus, is to turn to Him in faith and ask for grace. This is the absolute sine qua non solution to hypocrisy. You have to first turn to Jesus in faith and ask Him for the, the kind of internal cleansing that only He can provide. Again, what Jesus points out in this passage is that the scribes and the Pharisees are actually unable to cleanse themselves of their hypocrisy because the the uncleanness is inside of them. They cannot pull themselves up by the bootstraps. And so what Jesus has stated throughout this gospel is that not only are they going to need the aid of a foreign righteousness if they're going to be delivered from this condition, but He stated that He's the one that's come to deliver it. This is all over the Gospel of Matthew. In fact, the issue is so basic that I think it's safe to say that it's actually at the very heart of the Gospel itself. I mean, it starts, for instance, as early as the birth of Jesus. When the angel of the Lord tells Joseph, You shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. It then continues with the ministry of John the Baptist, who precedes the arrival of the Messiah by telling Israel, I baptize you with water for repentance, but he who is coming after me is mightier than I, whose sandals I am not worthy to carry. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. John comes to Israel. He comes calling them to confess their sins and to await the one who will transform them by the power of the Holy Spirit. And of course, we know that he identifies Jesus to be that man as he baptizes him in Matthew chapter 3. By the time we get to Matthew 5, Jesus tells Israel, if you want to enter into heaven, then your righteousness has to exceed that of the scribes and the Pharisees. And he immediately starts pointing to this inner condition. Of course, by the end of that sermon, no one is able to produce this kind of change on their own. That should be the conviction by the time you get to the end of the Sermon on the Mount. And so as Jesus concludes that sermon, he begins by saying, ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks it will be open. That's a statement that we know from the Gospel of Luke refers to the gift of the Holy Spirit. Jesus is encouraging his audience to ask for a righteousness that they cannot produce on their own. In the subsequent chapters, Jesus then goes to, on to demonstrate a series of miracles, miracles like the cleansing of the leper and the healing of the paralytic. And of the woman with the hemorrhage. And these miracles demonstrate that he possesses the power and authority to provide this cleansing in and of himself. 
In fact, even the, the healing of various Gentiles were a special kind of demonstration of this idea, as were the exorcism of various demons. That's really the heart of this gospel. It's Jesus turning to the people of Israel and crying out, Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly of heart, and you will find rest for your souls, for my yoke is easy and my burden is light. Jesus says, Come to me. Turn to me. Let me take that burden from you. And I think that when he says this, he's primarily referring to the heavy burden that the scribes and Pharisees placed on the people with their endless set of rules and regulations as they focused on the external, certainly. But I think it most certainly, that extends to the the internal transformation that Jesus would provide as he lifted this burden from his people as well. He's the one that can clean them from the inside so that they no longer have to try to manage their uncleanness by cleaning the outside of the dish. Again, that's at the heart of this gospel. That's the basic message that Jesus delivers here. He is the one who will remove the uncleannesses of His people. So if they want to be saved, if they want to possess the righteousness that surpasses that of the scribes and Pharisees, a righteousness that they need in order to enter into the kingdom of heaven, then they need to believe in Him, turn to Him in faith, and ask. That starts with a confession of sin. It starts with the recognition of one's uncleanness and unworthiness of God. You know, blessed are the poor in spirit, Jesus says in the introduction to the Sermon on the Mount. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. It starts there with with humility and contrition and confession of sin. And then it finds full expression in turning to Jesus and asking Him for the grace that He can provide in cleansing the sinner of their sin. The signs, the sermons, they all at their core pointed to that reality. That Jesus was the one that cleansed. The problem for the scribes and the Pharisees is that they refused to accept that most basic message. When they were confronted with the signs that pointed to this reality, they steadfastly refused to accept this offer, even going so far as to say that Jesus got His power from Satan Himself. They would not accept either the fact that the problem was inside them, nor the offer that Jesus made to cleanse them of their sin. If you want to be cleansed of your hypocrisy, then this is the very first step you must take to do it. And again, I cannot stress how important enough how important this is. In just a second, we're going to talk about some other measures that Jesus addresses in this gospel that we can take to see our hypocrisy eliminated. But before we move on to those, you have to understand You have to understand, there is no step two without this step one. It's the foundation. It's the foundation, because without it, you're still going to possess the uncleanness that pollutes even your understanding of righteousness itself. Paul talks about this in 2 Corinthians 3, speaking of his his fellow Israelites. He says that, quote, To this day, whenever Moses is read, a veil lies over their hearts. But when one turns to the Lord, the veil is removed. What Paul is saying is that before a person comes to Christ, they can't even fully understand the meaning of the Old Covenant. The sin in them twists and distorts and suppresses the meaning of the law. It's there and in a sense able to be seen, but a veil lies over their hearts, obscuring them from the true meaning of that law. It's only in Christ that the veil is removed. Once a person comes to Him in faith, confessing their sin and asking for grace and mercy, it's at that point that the true meaning of the law is going to start to come into focus. This is why you have to come to Jesus first. Until He cleanses you, even your understanding of righteousness is going to be twisted by your sin. Only Christ can take that away. So if you want to be cleansed of your hypocrisy, this is really where you have to begin. You turn to Jesus in faith, trusting in Him as your Lord and Savior. It starts there. Now, it it starts there. But it doesn't end there. As I mentioned last week, even as Christians, it's possible for us to fall sway to hypocrisy. So even after we come to Jesus and ask Him for the kind of cleansing that only He can provide, after He takes that away, that inferior condition, there's something that still must be done. What must be done? Well, you have to apply a superior method. Jesus can undo the inner problem that creates our hypocrisy, but once that inner problem has been dealt with, we still have to attack the thinking that Jesus shows us does perpetuate this kind of sin in our lives. What does that mean? What does that look like? Again, summarizing what Jesus has told His followers throughout the Gospel, I would say it means this. Number one, 
seek to understand and apply the principle of the law over the letter of the law. Seek to understand and apply the principle of the law over the letter of the law. You see this idea emphasized throughout Jesus' confrontations with the Pharisees. Uh, For example, when they confronted him over issues like his acceptance of Matthew Levi or his position on Sabbath, Jesus responded, not by engaging them over whether or not he had actually broken the strict definition of the law. Rather, he challenged them over the governing principle of the law itself. He pushed them back to its foundation in order to interpret his actions, saying, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice. Of course, he condemned them for their legalism in places like Matthew 15 and in our passage last week, Matthew 23, 16-24, for observing the details of the law over its foundations. And of course, you guys know, when uh, he was challenged about the greatest commandment of the law, he brought it all back down, really, to the inner condition of the worshiper, saying that the summary of the law was to love the Lord their God with all their heart, with all their soul, with all their mind. This is how Jesus confronted Pharisaical hypocrisy. He brought the discussion back down to the foundation of the law over its specific practices, to the theory of the law over the details. And he did this because that discussion ultimately brings a person back to the inner person of the heart. That's where a discussion of the principle of the law leads because that's what the law demands at its core. Not just rote obedience, but worship. That sort of a discussion, a discussion about worship, is obviously going to lead a person to focus on who they are inwardly and seek change there instead of just modifying their actions. So I think that's where Jesus shows us that repentance from hypocrisy begins. After we've turned to Him in faith. It starts by defining sin and righteousness accurately. And we do that by focusing on the big picture of the law rather than the details. We ask ourselves questions like, Do I worship God? Do I worship God? Do I love people? Because those types of questions force us to wrestle with who we are. Not just what we do. So that's the first step in this better approach to hypocrisy. We seek to understand and apply the principle of the law over the letter of the law. The second thing that Jesus shows us is that we need to seek the root desires of our sin. Again, Jesus says in Matthew 15 that the sin we perform spills out from inside of us. It's rooted in the desires of the heart. This means that if we're going to attack our sin, we can't just address the action. We have to go after the desires that are inside of us. You know, do you get angry? Do you yell and scream when you lose your temper? Or do you lust after another person's spouse? Or do you covet what they have? Are you jealous of God's blessing in their life? If so, Jesus' brother James explains where that all comes from. James 4, 1-3. What causes quarrels and what causes fights among you? Is it not this, that your passions are at war within you? You desire and do not have, so you murder. You covet and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask wrongly to spend it on your passions. He says that all these sins that manifest themselves outside of us come from these unfulfilled desires that we have inside of us. These idols that we worship before God. This means that in order to attack the action, you have to, or or, or you could even say the emotion of sin, you have to identify the idol and address the issue there first. It's like what Jesus says in Matthew 6. He says, selfishness doesn't just stem from a feeling called greed. Greed, he says, rather comes from idolatry. Money, he says, can become an idol that you actually set your hope in more than God, like you believe mammon will deliver you before God will. That's where your greed is rooted in this thought process, this idolatry. So if you want to put away selfishness with your money, it starts by identifying greed not just as a feeling you experience, but as idolatry. You have to get down to the root issue. So firstly, identify and pursue the principle of the law over the letter of the law. Secondly, seek the root desire of your sin. And then thirdly, Repent by faith. Repent by faith. Again, we see this concept illustrated in the Sermon on the Mount as Jesus addresses the problem of greed. He points out, again, that greed is actually a form of idolatry. It's an expression of one's trust in money over their trust in God. So then, how does one resolve this idolatry? They do it, number one, 
by exposing the impotence of money, and number two, by remembering the omnipotence and goodness of God. You see this point illustrated immediately after Jesus' condemnation of the idolatry of money. Right after he condemns the idolatry of money, he says, Therefore I tell you, do not be anxious about your life, what you will eat or what you will drink, nor about your body, what you will put on. It's not life more than food and the body more than clothing. Look at the birds of the air. They neither sow nor reap nor gather into barns, and yet your heavenly Father feeds them. Are you not of more value than they? And which of you, being anxious, can add a single hour to this, his span of life? And why are you anxious about clothing? Consider the lilies of the field, how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. Yet I tell you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. But if God so clothes the grass of the field, which today is alive and tomorrow is thrown into the oven, will he not much more clothe you, O you of little faith? Therefore do not be anxious, saying, What shall we eat, or what shall we drink, or what shall we wear? For the Gentiles seek after all these things, and your heavenly Father knows that you need them all. But seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious about tomorrow, for tomorrow will be anxious for itself. Sufficient for the day is its own trouble. You know, as his disciples wrestle with idolatry, Jesus says, look, you can't add a single hour to your life by worrying about it, right? That's exposing the impotence of money. As his disciples worry about their financial future and pursue that over their obedience to God. He then magnifies the omnipotence and goodness of God by saying, look at the birds. Look at the flowers of the field. God cares for all of those things. So you think He cannot or will not care for you? Of course, He then concludes by saying, Therefore do not be anxious about tomorrow. Seek first the kingdom of God, and all these things will be added to you. This is how Jesus deals with sin. He draws the person inward into the desires of their heart by focusing on the principle of the law over the letter of the law. He identifies the root of that sin by uncovering the idol that's at work in their heart. And then He overturns that idol by replacing the reverence for that idol with a superior reverence for God. In other words, he doesn't just command obedience. He commands obedience by faith. And so he tears down the idolater's thoughts in the sinner and replaces them with thoughts that exalt God and transform the sinner into a worshiper. This is a process that we see described in the rest of the Scripture as the renewing of the mind. And it's key in this fight against hypocrisy because it's aimed at transforming the sinner from the inside out. So if you want to repent of your hypocrisy, here's your battle plan. Jesus shows us in Matthew 23 where the root of hypocrisy is. It's rooted inside of us. And he shows us that where the Pharisees went wrong was in adopting this method that cleaned the outside rather than the inside. So how do you get rid of this sin? Well, again, throughout the rest of the Gospel of Matthew, Jesus shows us. First and most importantly, we turn to Christ and ask Him for the internal cleansing that only He can provide. That's the first and most important step. And then second, we continue to address the soul by focusing on the principle of the law rather than the letter. We identify the root of our sinful desires, and then we turn away from our idolatry in faith. Tonight we'll try to spend some time brainstorming about what we can do practically to pursue these steps and see this sin eliminated in our lives. In the meantime, let's go ahead and close in prayer.